This episode is sponsored by GovX, a company I've used for several years now and wish I'd used for even longer. If you are a member of police, fire, EMS, corrections, nursing, a hospital setting doctor, and members of the military, and you are not registered with GovX, you are simply wasting your money. A free registration with GovX marries you with a multitude of companies that are offering our professions discount. So by registering at govx.com for free, you will then have a lifetime membership and you can shop for the very same things and save money. I've saved a huge amount of money buying sunglasses, I've bought knives, I've bought clothes, and even concert tickets on there. Another area I love about this company is GovX Gives Back, where they will raise money for different foundations every single month. And with this being September, they have a 9-11 memorial patch that raises money for firefighter aid. So if you're active duty, if you are retired, or if you're a volunteer, you are eligible for this membership. And on top of the savings that you will get by being a member, GovX is reaching out to you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, to offer you an extra discount. If you spend 50, that's five zero dollars on your first order and use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, you will save an additional $15. So $15 off your first order of $50. So visit govx.com, G-O-V-X.com, register, and then be a member for life and continue to save over and over again. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 5.11 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. Welcome to episode 361 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show the superintendent of Oregon State Penitentiary, Brandon Kelly. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey through the Marines to entering corrections, working his way up through all the different ranks, 
And then one day being told he's going to Norway and learning about the organization Amend and how they are trying to progressively change the correctional system to improve the outcome of rehabilitation and lower recidivism. Before we get to this conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does make us more and more visible for people looking for a project like this. And this is a free library for you, the audience, whether individually, whether organizationally. So all I ask in return is that you pay it forward and help share these amazing men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. And as a side note, I just released a book, One More Light, Life, Death, and Humanity Through the Eyes of the Firefighter, which is available on Amazon around the world. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Brandon Kelly. Enjoy. Brandon, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, so where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am currently located at the Oregon State Penitentiary in the state of Oregon in the United States. Willingly, not by uh, <laughs> not by the law. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm one that works here. I don't live here. <laughs> okay, so I like to start chronologically from the very beginning. So... Tell me, where were you born? And then just give me a, a rough overview of your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I was uh, born in 1973 in uh, uh, Valparaiso, Indiana. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. I, uh, my father was, worked at the steel mills in Gary, Indiana. Um, I'm a middle, middle son, so I have an older brother, four years older, and then a younger brother that's four years younger than me. So I had that stigma of the middle child. And uh, so we grew up there until I was the age of 12, was uh, an active athlete. All my brothers and I and my family were very active in sports. And uh, at the age of 12, my father decided that he wanted to give his sons a better opportunity uh, to have more than just working in the steel mill. Because that's what, you know, Northwest Indiana, you pretty much grew up, got a job in the steel mill, and that's what you did. And my dad had higher hopes for us and wanted to provide better opportunities. So he uh, up and moved the family to California, uh, to the Bay Area in Fremont, California, so just outside of San Francisco there, and uh, thought we'd have a better opportunity to get education or a bigger insight into what there is out in the world. Uh, so that's where I went to high school. So I went to high school. I had uh, ambitions and dreams of uh, going on to med school. Uh, my dream was to be a neurosurgeon. I was uh, accepted to the University of California, San Diego, into pre-med school. And about eight days prior to uh, leaving off and going to college, uh, I made a decision that uh, I was going to uh, be a father. Well, kind of made a decision, I guess. Uh, my girlfriend at the time became pregnant, and uh, I decided that I was going to have to step up, and it was time to be a father. Um, so I joined the Marine Corps. So I joined the United States Marine Corps at the age of 18. Um, broke my mother's heart a little bit because I was going to be the first child to go off to college in the family. Uh, but came home and said, it looks like I'm not going to college, I'm going to be a Marine. So I joined the Marine Corps, uh, had my first child, you know, at the age of 18. Um, spent six years in the Marine Corps, uh, spent a little time, uh, unfortunately, was divorced at the age of 20. A single dad at 21 um, of a 
wonderful two-year-old daughter. Uh, that to this day we tease that we probably grew up together a little bit through those first years of life for her. Uh, and then I met my uh, second wife at uh, when I was in the Marine Corps. We got married and had another child, so I have a second daughter that's uh, five years younger than my first, and uh, spent six years in the Marine Corps. Uh, my youngest daughter was just born, so I was looking for a career. We were relocating from Southern California to Oregon, and I needed to find a job. Uh, in reality, you know, nothing more than something to put food on the table, a roof over our heads, and provide for my family, because that's the lifestyle I came from. You know, my dad was a hardworking man and always taught his boys that, you know, you provide for your family and you do what a man should do and you work and you work hard. Um, so I was looking for a job. I took a tour of a county jail in California. My uh, mother was working in a county jail as a, an administrative type of person. So she's like, hey, there, you know, there's a lot of correctional officers here in these county jails that seem to love their job. I think it's something you'd be good at. So I took a tour of uh, a county jail there and decided that, hey, this is something I can do for a while while I go back to school. So I was um, relocated to Oregon. Um, seven days after my discharge from the Marine Corps, I was hired with the Oregon Department of Corrections as a correctional officer. And uh, I started working and going to school. I wanted to be, at that time, I decided trying to have young kids and be a doctor was probably too high of hopes, but I was going to start pursuing a career as to become a certified public accountant. I uh, started taking some classes and working here at the Oregon State Penitentiary. Got about three, three and a half years in, and uh, some people started talking to me about promoting, and uh, that they thought I had some skills that would do well in corrections, and saw some leadership capabilities in me, and told me I should pursue uh, promoting. So that's... Uh, they convinced me to do that, and I put my name on a sergeant list, thinking if I'm going to promote, I might as well try to go from officer to sergeant. Uh, was fortunate enough to be selected for that position and uh, went into being a sergeant. And So I don't know if you want me to go through my whole career now or if you want anything else about my family life before we move on to that. Or Yeah, no, I'd love to, to kind of go back and unpack a little bit. So when you went from indiana and then you moved to california obviously now you've spent a, a career in corrections as a younger man were there any observations through your own eyes through maybe your dad's parenting style that um kind of educated you on how you were able to stay um you know on the right side of the law but yet you saw so many of your fellow men and women not able to stay in the right side of the law um, yeah, there were, well, actually, um, my older brother uh, was part of, I guess I should go back a little bit, part of us leaving Indiana and part of my dad's uh, decision to move is my older brother at the age of 13 was arrested for the first time, uh, went away to boys' school, um, for, uh, started to dabble in some drugs at the time and uh, petty theft kind of things and had to spend some time in boys' school, and that was our first uh real exposure to incarceration or people being uh, in trouble with the law. And uh, that was part of my dad's belief was that part of it was that in Indiana they didn't provide much opportunity and in some ways felt that although he taught us how to work hard and be good men that maybe he missed a beat about that and wanted to ensure that there was other opportunities uh, for my older brother once he got released from boys school and then for my younger brother and I, that he wanted to give us a better opportunity and more choices than what Indiana provided. So that was my first exposure. Um, 
Christmas. Uh, my not, I was nine years old on Christmas Day when my we had to take my brother to jail because he was doing like a weekend jail kind of thing, and uh, that was my first like exposure and understanding of what incarceration means to a family and what it did to. I mean, I had a very loving family. We were very close knit, but to see, you know, having one of our members of our family ripped, not ripped away, but taken away and incarcerated had an impact on us and um, made an impression on me. Yeah. Now, was he, what was his journey after that? Was there rehabilitation? Did he, did he continue to to go down that road? Because I mean, obviously what we're going to talk about is, is the pros and cons of some of the, the prison models that we have at the moment. Um, no, actually, my brother is, he's now 51 years old, and as, as we say, uh, there was way, ebbs and flows of um, rehabilitation and relapse. Um, so he is currently going on 10 years of sobriety and 10 years since his last incarceration, but for 20, no, 34 years, I guess, for 34 years of his life, he spent in and out of going to prison. Um, well, jails and then ultimately into prison. He spent some time in um, San Quentin, California, was his most recent incarceration. And uh, so throughout my adolescent years, my adult life, it's been dealing with my brother going in and out of uh, some kind of correctional system, either jails or prisons, and of addiction. Um, he, you know, he's a recovering addict um, to this day. Um, and yeah, so, but he's going on 10 years sober now. Um, he's got a family of his own. He's married, just bought his first house just last month. That is the first time that my brother was able to buy a house for himself. He's held down the same job for 10 years, clean and sober. His wife is clean and sober, has four uh, wonderful children. Um, yeah, so going strong now. Well, firstly, that's amazing. Congratulations to him. Um, secondly, this is something that I've talked about a lot on the show, but I don't want to preload the question. What is your observation of addiction and incarceration? I, I believe a lot of addiction leads. Kind of my belief on that is that uh, incarceration, and, and if I get off on a little bit of a tangent, I apologize, but a lot of my belief is in society, and especially here in our American society, I think a lot of people believe that our prison systems, our correctional systems are full of a bunch of bad people. Um, but I would disagree and say our, our, our correctional systems are filled with a lot of good people who have made bad choices or poor choices. And I think incarceration, I mean, um, addiction has, plays a large role in that. You know, I, I think my brother's first poor choice was uh, utilizing controlled substances, which led to addiction, which led him down a path to make even more poor choices, which then ended up in incarceration. Yeah. So, so just to tack onto that, I'm, I'm glad that that was your perspective. I figured it probably would be. The thing that I talked about a lot, and again, I don't want to load this question, but my perspective has been through some of the people I've had on here that the prohibition of drugs, so basically not not um, talking about smugglers, not talking about dealers, but addicts. The fact that addicts become criminals, um, you know, it's, it's almost been a hundred years now. It, it was founded, obviously, on a very racist um, kind of uh, philosophy at the time. We've seen alcohol prohibition fail miserably. And I truly believe that these countries that have, that have reversed it, whether it's Switzerland or Portugal, that have de decriminalized or even legalized addiction, not dealing, not smuggling, addiction... Um, 
that that's something that we should embrace here in, in, in America, in the UK, in Australia, and all these other places that have the Philadelphia prison model. Because as you said, I, I see the same things as a paramedic. I see people that are hurting through, through mental health um, issues that have turned to addiction. They're not, you know, sociopaths. They're not horrendous people. They're just hurting and have turned to these drugs for help. So what is your perspective on, hypothetically, if we stopped making addicts uh, criminals and turned them into patients, um, the effect that would have on just crime and safety in this country in general? Um. I really believe it, it, it's a path that I think we definitely need to explore and is more impactful and impressionable. I mean, my brother is a great example. If he went in and out of incarceration numerous times, but incarceration never deterred him from making the choice to reuse or didn't change his addiction. If anything, it in some ways fed his addiction because then he was no longer accepted into society in some ways because now he was a criminal. So what else did he have to go back to but his addiction? Because that's one thing he had control over to some, you know, in his mind anyway, is that's something that made him feel better about him. Uh, so yeah, I, I think there's definitely, we need to take a different look at it and not, not for sure criminalize addiction. I, you know, I don't, some, some may say addiction's a choice, but I don't really think it is. I think the initial use is, is a choice, but you don't choose to become addicted. That, that's a, uh, addiction is a serious problem, and I think we could do better at how we um, tackle, tackle addiction and how we fix addiction. Absolutely. Well, so back to your introduction to the prison system then. So, have, excuse me, having finished with the Marines, having um, transitioned out, what was your impression as a corrections officer? Just, I mean, in, in any way, shape or form, what were your perspectives when you first became an officer? Um, actually, initially, I really liked it. Um, I had a passion in me right, you know, pretty quickly that I thought about that, how I would take corrections and how I would um, do my job on a daily basis. And I looked at it as a lot of these individuals were my brother, um, you know, and I wanted to treat people how I wanted my brother to be treated while incarcerated. And, you know, going through as a sibling, dealing with his incarceration and seeing some of the struggles he went through in the systems that he, he was in um, gave me a perspective of how I thought we could do it different, you know, and that I could do it different. So um, I didn't look at my job as my job wasn't to punish people. Uh, my job was to hold people accountable for their actions, but also give them the opportunity for change. And luckily and fortunate for me, uh, my first job was within the Oregon Department of Corrections, and we've always, you know, throughout my career, been more about that, not incarcerating people for punishment, but um, giving people the opportunity for change. Brilliant. Well, for people listening, because most of us are not in the corrections realm, can you kind of give us a history of the Philadelphia model and then some of the pros and cons that you've seen, just you know, nationally or even internationally? Um, well, I, you know, I think, to, and I'm maybe not specifically the Philadelphia model, but I think a lot of people or a lot of times in corrections here is it's about holding people accountable and there's a consequence for your actions 
and it's a punishment that, you know, you're going to prison for punishment. You committed a crime and I'm going to punish you. And, you know, I, I don't know that that's the model that we want to go for or that's effective. Um, that, you know, it's that whole, some people would say, lock them up and throw away the key that, you know, you commit a crime, you're going to be incarcerated and spend some time in jail and prison. And then you're going to come out and you're going to make better choices because you don't want to go back to prison. You know, you don't want to live that life or that incar be incarcerated again. And I think that's not the right answer. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just please correct me. Again, I'm a layman. I've just got these these statistics from, you know, uh, documentaries and, and the Internet. But from what I understand, in the 1970s, our prison population in the U.S. was about 350,000. And now at in 2020, we're at 2.3 million. So again, with your industry, um, you know, is is there a growing push to do things differently? I mean, it seems like that's just a swelling population that definitely is an indicator of the current model maybe not being as effective as people think. Yeah, there's definitely uh, a push for that. And I think, you know, what we're seeing is I mean, like you said, it's in the numbers, because if what we were doing worked, then why is our population continuing to grow, um, it, you know, and exponentially? I mean, it's not just growing at the same pace of, of our population, it's growing exponentially. You know, a larger percentage of our population are becoming incarcerated. And in some ways, we can't even say it's because, of, you know, some will argue or take the point is because we're coming tougher on crime, tougher on crime. But in reality, that's not really... I don't believe anyway the cause of it. The cause is that what what we're doing is not working, that there's got to be a better model and a better way to do it. Absolutely. So when were, when were some of the aha moments in your career at whatever rank where you started pushing for more progressive philosophies within the, the prison walls? Well, you know, I, I mean, I started it as a correctional officer, but you only have so much influence. You know, I mean, I could do it on how I handled my job on a daily basis and what I did every day. Um, and then got to the rank of sergeant and that expanded a little bit more. You know, my zone of control or my um, zone of power. And I, I hate to use the word power, but that's kind of what, you know, as you get rank and, you know, control and power is kind of what we speak about in prison. And that's you know, hopefully later we'll get into my philosophy on power and how we need to change the philosophy of what power really means in corrections. Um, but at that time, is you know, then I was able to share my ideas with more people. I had more influence because I had some rank. But I really think I saw the big differences once I hit lieutenant in the management ranks because then I've got to I got to set culture and have impact on culture, and I got to set. Um, the direction we were going and have more influence on how we were going to do things. You know, I started getting involved in work groups that, you know, talked about sentencing structure for um, infractions inside our prison system. I got to be more involved in making decisions about types of programs, types of, types of opportunities, um, how to hold people accountable if they did have an infraction or if, if they did make a poor choice even while incarcerated. So I think it's really in the lieutenant ranks, and then as I moved on to captain, security manager, and through the ranks, it just continued to grow. But I would say my most impactful aha moments of my career have been since I've been involved with the AMEND program and our trip to Norway. Um, it gave me the opportunity or the insight into myself of what I've always thought or how I've controlled myself and realized 
man, I can actually make this better. I can I can expand this. That you know, I haven't allowed myself to have as much influence or push as I maybe should have. That there's this deep uh, burning passion in me that I need to uh, push a little harder. If that makes sense. No, it does. Absolutely. So I, I want to expand on that then. So Tom obviously was on the, the podcast. He's coming on um, again. We're doing a joint uh, interview with someone from Amend as well. So walk me through how you discovered Bastoy and, and then your journey over there. Um, <laughs> well, it's kind of a different story. So, uh, you know, I'm newly selected as the superintendent here at the Oregon State Penitentiary, which is our only maximum security prison in Oregon. And I received the, you know, I heard about this Norway uh, amend partnership that we had. Our director had visited Norway. Um, she had come back and shared with us some of the insight and some of the philosophy. And, you know, um, fortunately or unfortunately, I guess, in some ways, those of us in positions of running our prisons tend to believe, hey, I'm running a great institution, I'm running a great prison, I don't need some other place to come in and tell me how I can do things better. So we're very prideful in this profession and um, wanting to do the right thing and control our places. But uh, so I'd heard about it and uh, my supervisor called and said, hey, Brandon, how would you like to go to Norway? And I said, I'm good. And he said, no, really, like, how would you like to make a trip to Norway as part of this amend program and kind of explore and see what they have to offer? And I said again, I said, no, Rob, I'm, I'm, I'm good. And he said, Brandon, no, really, how would you like to go to Norway? And I said, well, Rob, it sounds like I'm going to Norway. And he says, yeah, the director believes that as the superintendent of the penitentiary, it'd be a great opportunity for you to go. Uh, so I said, well, hey, all you had to do is call me up and, you know, we're corrections people. And we, you know, we know how to follow orders. I said, hey, all you had to do is tell me I was going to Norway. He said, no, I want you, I want you to want to go to Norway. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll go up with an open mind um, and... We'll see what happens, but I, I'm not sure how another country is going to show me how I can uh, run a better prison because we're, you know, I thought well, I was running a wonderful prison, and I, you know, in hindsight I was, but uh, but I think we could do better. Um, so then, uh, yeah, I got to go to Norway, had the opportunity in 2018, went on a little trip to Norway, uh, had the opportunity to tour many of their prisons, and uh, Bastoy was one of the prisons we visited. I got to meet Tom, and uh, that was actually a very uh, enlightening experience, specifically the Bastoy trip, of hearing the perspective of Tom as a leader, leader and his role, and then of some of the people that um, live there and their role and the relationship and the influence that the two two had on one another was a big aha moment for me, and has actually translated back into um, a philosophy that we follow here now at the Oregon State Penitentiary. Brilliant. Well, for people listening that haven't heard Tom's interview, through your eyes, from through um, you know, an American prison um, superintendent's eyes, what did you see? Describe the prison for you know, for the audience. Um, uh, it was a farm, you know, and they had outbuildings and cottages where they could go. And at first, it was hard to differentiate between who worked there and who lived there. You know, at first, we were trying to figure out, like, you know, Tom obviously had a uniform on. And the correctional staff did, but some of the others didn't. And trying to see that difference and everyone interacting with one another, talking, um, communicating, working together, uh, 
it was kind of like, man, this is almost like this is its own little culture here, its own little community, and there's not a separation between that. Everybody has a role in this community and uh, and, a, and a space in making this a great uh, great place to be. And it, that's where I say, it, I guess it was eye opening to where that's where I realized that our our, our prison systems. A lot would say, hey, um, us and them kind of mentality. You know, there's those that, uh, the incarcerated, you know, the inmates, we call them adults in custody or the prisoners, however you refer to them, and then there's the staff. And what that Bastoy experience and watching them interact is where I realized, and when I say that's why we changed the philosophy here, that's where we turned into, our prisons are actually a place where some people live, some people work, some people visit, but it's a place we all exist in and it's our community and we all have an equal responsibility to making our community a safe community um, and a community for change for all of us and a place for us all to become better people and better neighbors and um, do the right thing together now to, again expand on on the violence in the prison too because obviously we see a lot of you know again i'm i'm a complete layman we are told that there's a lot of violence in in the the, uh, the u.s prisons what did you see as far as how the guards were armed, the violence between prisoner and prisoner or prisoner on guard? What were you seeing in New in Norway? Well, in Norway, they didn't uh, they don't carry any kind of equipment. So that was one of the things we found first is, you know, we were asking the staff there like, hey, where's your handcuffs? And they're like, we don't we don't carry handcuffs. So, well, what do you do when you have a fight? And they say, well, we're going to just tell them to stop and or we intervene, but we don't really deal with that too much, you know, and, uh, and I said, well, what, you know, what, where's your pepper spray? And they said, well, you, we're not allowed to have pepper spray. You have to call for a supervisor to get pepper spray. And we're like, well, you don't have anything to protect yourself. And they say, yeah, we, I have my words, you know, I have my ability to communicate. And that's a, that's a little bit different than what, uh, well, a little bit different or a lot different in some places here in the United States than how we, how we deal with those kind of situations, you know. Um, here in Oregon, all of our officers have a pair of handcuffs. All of them ca carry pepper spray and uh, have the ability to make the decision to use those on their own. Don't have to ask for supervisor approval. So it, it seemed like a much um, calmer environment in Norway. Um, I mean, those of us that worked in prisons walked through our prisons and we all would, you know, we would debrief afterwards. And in the afternoons, we'd look at each other and say, like, hey, I spent all day in prison, but I didn't feel like I was in prison. You know, whereas here, um, you know, at the time you walked into our prisons here, you, your guard went up, you, you know, you're more hyper vigilant, you're, you know, more aware of your surroundings and kind of on edge a little bit, a little bit tense. And we found that in Norway, we didn't feel that way. Yeah, well, that's an observation I've made, too. We've had um, a couple of people with corrections background on the show. And to me, from the layman perspective, it's you guys are in prison you don't see daylight for 12 hours you you know like you said you have to be just as aware of violence towards you as another prisoner does so to me the guards literally are more almost incarcerated themselves versus the model in norway where like you said they're cohabiting in you know a, a beautiful farm-like space yeah it really is and that's that's why i say going back to where that's kind of what we're trying to change the philosophy here and getting staff here to understand is we don't have to do it that way that this can be a place where yeah I don't live here 
I work here, but it's still my community. It's still my responsibility to um, make this a better place that we're in. That, um, and I, I think what we're seeing thus far here in Oregon, and specifically here at the Penn, at the penitentiary, is that starting to ease people a little bit. We are seeing staff saying, hey, you know what, I, I do feel better. We're seeing a de decrease in uh, the level of stress in our employees because we're taking a different approach. Yeah, now just to be clear as well, this Bastoy still has some, you know, some more severe uh, criminals in there. So, I mean, you said yours was a, a high security, excuse me, a maximum security prison. Um, as far as I remember from when I was talking to Tom, I mean, there were even murderers in there that are, you know, functioning like normal human beings because they viewed that incident as, you know, a loss of temper, a crime of passion, whatever it is, versus a complete sociopath like the serial killer they had on, on the island that time. Yes. Yeah, no, I mean, there were individuals that um, lived there at Bastoy that were in for violent, but, you know, what we would deem as violent crimes. Um, on person-to-person -person crimes, and uh, that was a different kind of philosophy, too, that we kind of noticed in Norway, is their philosophy of they, ba they house people and move people based on their behavior and their desire to do well. You know, it wasn't, well, you're, you have this type of crime, so you can never come to this prison. It was more on, well, if you want to come here, this is how you get here. You work your way there, and in some sort of fashion, almost like an application process reviewed by um, what we call superintendents here, but they call governors of their prison system that review to let people come live there. And it's a little bit, it's a different philosophy and a different way of managing their prison system. Now, what did you observe of their recidivism rates? They had a very low recidivism rate. Um, we were very impressed. And, and, you know, Oregon at the time, I think we were sitting at a 28% um, recidivism rate and one of, if not the lowest in, in, in the nation here, and we were very proud of that. And then we get over to Norway, and theirs was uh, at least half of that. So to see that, we're like, oh my gosh, you know, we thought we were remarkable. Look at the look at the recidivism rate here. Absolutely. Well, um, with that, so when when I've told people about Bastoy, I mean, my whole thing with this project is is amongst other things to try and find people on planet Earth that are doing things better than us and when i say us i mean uk you know wherever somewhere other than where we're sitting right now and there are i mean there are solutions all over this globe you know whether it's environmental whether it's health whatever it is um but people you know, the knee-jerk reaction is well that'll never that'll never work here that's norway and my kind of comeback is well we're all human beings though that that's that's completely bogus there's people that have overturned the most horrendous things if you go through history so when you witnessed that in Norway and you saw the, the amazing success they were having, what was then your kind of plan of action to try and start chipping away at the way things were being done in Oregon? Um, well, first, I, I just got a big comment. It's, it's interesting that you make that uh, saying that we're all human beings, because that was actually one of the discussions we had, because, you know, we took a group of individuals, you know, like 10 of us that work inside our prisons here in Oregon, and when we went over, that was one of our first, you know, one of our discussions on the way over was like, ah, I don't know what we're really going to learn here. Norway's different. You know, they're a European country. They have different kinds of rules. They don't have the same um, government structure we do. They don't, you know, they don't have the same type of diversity that we do inside of our, you know, prison systems. They don't have gang issues. They don't have this. And we had all the reasons of why 
the Norwegian system wouldn't translate to an American system or specifically the Oregon system. And after we toured a couple prisons, we all sat down and said, hey, you know what? They have a lot of similar issues, you know, that they do have a diverse population. They do have some gang issues over here. They, you know, although they are a different governmental structure, they have a structure that they have to follow. And the very term we came down to, at the end of the day, they're dealing with human beings just like you and I. And uh, so that was eye-opening. And so coming back, what we decided as a group is what we needed to do is educate, start with educating our staff or the people that work here of, hey, you know, there is a better way to do it. And we've seen it. And then when they said, and I think this has been most impactful, is when they come back with, well, yeah, that would never work here because they're different. We were able to share our experience and say, no, no, no. Yeah, I, I thought that too until I saw this and this and this and realized that at the end, we're all just human beings and we're all dealing with human beings, whatever culture we're in. And so our biggest goal was just to start educating staff and um, opening opening our eyes. And, and what we want to do now is expand that out into the communities. And that was a big thing we saw in Norway that's a lot different, I think, here in, in our society is in Norway, their communities are edu educated about what goes on in their um, prison systems, what, what, what that involves, and they have a lot more interaction with the community or involvement of the community and an understanding of prison systems, where I think here in the United States, we don't do as well at that. Um, I think it goes back to what I said earlier, that a lot of people believe our prison systems are full of a bunch of bad people. And um, that's not the case that, yeah, is there a percentage of our population that are not the most desired type of people that we would want around ourselves or our families? That that may be true, but that doesn't mean just because some of them are all of them are. And that's kind of a philosophy that um, we wanted to come back from Norway and change that I saw is that in in corrections, we tend to. Uh, manage to the percentage of the people that are not going to not going to do things right. You know, like if any new idea, new new concept comes up, we always discuss why we shouldn't do it. Well, we can't do that because. But we never would start the conversation with we should do that because. You know, why should we versus why shouldn't we? We always rely on the why we shouldn't. And maybe what we need to start doing is relying more on the why we should. And that's kind of what we got out of Norway was you should do this because this is the impact you're going to get. And can we mitigate the why we shouldn't? Yeah, there's going to be some failure in that, but don't uh, overlook the ability to have 20 times the successes out of it. You know, that we're going to have to accept some of them as failures, but we're going to have a greater impact with the successes. And maybe over time, as we continue to do that, more and more people are going to understand, hey, let's, let's go this route because it's more beneficial to everybody involved. And that's kind of, um, you know, and, and if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to share a story that kind of coming back from Norway that um, goes kind of back to my brother that opened my eyes of how we can do better at educating is we did an event here at the penitentiary and, uh, you know, it was on social media, Facebook, and it was a CrossFit exercise kind of a event and they filmed it and our staff and uh, adults in custody did it together and we filmed it. So my mom, very proud of her middle child that, uh, you know, I'm running a prison. She's showing it to my two nieces. Uh, they were nine and ten at the time. And she's showing them this video and say, hey, look at Uncle Brandon. And they know a couple of my coworkers and, you know, friends of ours that work here and us exercising. And my one niece asked my mom and says, well, 
who's the people in blue? And my mom says, well, those are the inmates. And my niece looked at her and says, so those are the bad people. And I'm, my mom tells me that story. I said, mom, that's sad. And she said, what? I said, that's their dad. So this nine-year-old, ten-year-old girl think because you're an inmate, you're a bad person. They know their dad was an inmate. So then, in my mind, that relates to my dad's a bad person because he's an inmate. Well, a nine or ten-year-old thinks that we're doing a bad job at uh, educating people of what prisons really are, and those incarcerated are not not bad people necessarily. Absolutely, and I think that that's just it. What you talked about before about you know working out you know why why it would work rather than why it wouldn't i talked to uh um a, a, a sergeant major in canada who's in charge of an entire province in in the canadian police and we were talking about the prohibition thing for a second and he said one of the resistance that you that we have is that they are telling well police officers think well all that work i did arresting all those addicts was for nothing and i think it would be the same you know with resistance with prisons too and it's not about that. It's it's about understanding that at the time we did the best with what we thought was the right thing. But having the humility to say it's time that we look back, things aren't working as well as we hoped they had. And it's time that we swallow our pride and take a different tack because this isn't working. And you know, whether it's 100 years of, of prohibition or whether it's you know, prison uh, models, if we look back, like you said, and the numbers are charting in a way that's not you know, shouting success, then we have to have the humility to ask ourselves, is someone doing it better? And how can we apply that here? Yes, definitely. I mean, and that's um, one of the philosophies we came back with from Norway or understandings that we're sharing with our staff is as we come back and try to make change and an understanding of how we can do things better is uh, we had to accept, you know, those that lead our prison systems that the staff are just doing what we've trained them to do or what we've told them to do or what we've ingrained in ourselves is the right way to do things. And, you know, be able to accept that they, I'm not telling you you've been doing a bad job. You've actually been doing really well at the way I told you to do it. But maybe I've been telling you how to do it wrong and accepting that. And I think that's where we got to get to is it's not that the staff were doing it wrong. Our philosophy maybe wasn't all the way correct. And there may be a better way. And I think it's exactly what you said is the humility to say, hey, you know what? We thought this was the best way, but maybe it's not. And let's look at different ways and let's maybe experiment with some different ideas and concepts and philosophies and try them and see if they work. And if they work, great. If they don't, maybe, okay, that wasn't maybe the right model either for sure, but how can we tweak it a little bit or can we integrate it with some of the other ideas or concepts that we have? And finding that right way and not just saying there's only one way to do it yeah exactly well i had a um a member of seal team six will chesney who's uh his, he and his canine were actually there at the bin laden raid and he was talking about people buying a dock and, and he said if you buy um, a malinois you know and leave it in in the in the house for hours at a time you're probably going to have your house rearranged by its teeth you know and it, and it really <laughs> kind of made me think about when we lock people in cells. I actually visited the Ohio Penitentiary um, a few months ago as well. And then you look again at the Bastoy, the Norwegian model, and they're interacting. Like you said, they're in houses, they're living together, they're cooking, they're cleaning, they're going to, to work. 
And so when you look at that simple philosophy, what we do to an animal, if we cage an animal up for a certain period of time, it becomes more aggressive, it becomes more restless, it becomes less focused. So uh, common sense wise, again, giving giving people outlets, whether it's career outlets, whether it's learning languages, you know, exercise, whatever it is, and nature, the healing power of nature, it just makes sense on so many levels to as best you can try and remove some of the the bars and the walls and and, and create a more uh, organic environment for these men and women the ones that are sound of mind to be able to realize that yes i can focus my energy and become a functioning member of society again yeah definitely i mean i think it's about giving people the opportunities for success and uh, sharing with them in those successes and recognizing those successes is very important and, um, you know, I, I think uh, some, some of this COVID stuff we're going through now is, you know, some of our staff are realizing, you know, being, you know, locked in your house, you know, or, and more isolated due, you know, due to COVID restrictions and stuff. I think uh, all of us are starting to realize, like, man, it, it weighs on you a little bit, you know, that lack of interaction and lack of um, opportunity to get out and do things. It, it is hard on a person. And, you know, in some ways, that's what our incarceration does is, you know, limits interaction, limits ability to get out, limits exposure, that it, it is hard. And I think we doing better at that is going to make it a more productive place for change. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about expanding on the concept of power within the prison. So I'd love to, to hear your philosophy on that. Oh, yeah. So um, we do a... Um, you know, all our new employees, we go up and give kind of an overall philosophy or the view of, you know, how we're our culture here. But one of the things we talk about is power. And I think in corrections or policing that a lot of people mistake what our power really is in this profession, that people believe they have the, you know, I become a correctional officer. I come in here. I have I have the power to control people and I have the power to arrest. I have the power to incarcerate, you know, and I have the power to make you do things. And uh, although, yes, that is power, I guess, you know, and you do have the ability to do that, that is not really the power that you have. The big power, the major power you have in corrections is you have the power to change and you have the power to provide the opportunity for change. And what a greater power than the, giving somebody the opportunity to do better, to make better choices, to become better people. And that's what we're trying to instill in our uh, staff here is that come to work every day, understanding that in very few, few professions can you come to work every day and have the power to change the world. And in corrections, you have that because how I choose to interact with an individual on any given day is going to impact how they interact with those they come in contact with the rest of that day, potentially the rest of their life or how they think or how they make choices in the future. And if we come in here knowing that I have the power to make a positive impact on somebody who in turn is going to positively impact others that may turn around and positively come around full play you know, on full circle to me is you have the power to change the world in a positive way every day, one interaction at a time. And that's, that's a pretty big power. And that's probably, I think, one of the greatest powers you can have is the power to change the world. And I truly believe in corrections, that's what we have. Absolutely. Well, I've had people, several people on the show that, that were in, in prison. One became a wildland firefighter through the federal program, and she ended up having a full career as a firefighter. 
Another one was uh, a poet, kind of started writing in, in jail and ended up writing sc uh, screenplays and, and books. Um, uh, so, you know, each one of these people, though, the pivotal person was some sort of mentor, whether it was a guard, whether it was, you know, one of the, the civilians that comes in and visits and helps teach. So if that can impact them, and like you said, the, the more people that have that philosophy, that you're not just an, a gatekeeper, that you are actually able to positively influence um, you know, the prisoners, then the, the more chance there is of people finding uh, a much healthier path when they get out. Oh, definitely. And I think, you know, that's a, one part of that that we talk about is um, here is that staff don't realize every interaction has the impact on an individual. And, I, you know, I use a story of uh, two brothers here that I was a sergeant and, you know, I only can share the story because the way they relate it back to me is I we had a conversation about drug addiction and the impact on family. And I shared a little bit of my own personal experience of, you know, having a brother um, incarcerated due to addiction and the impact it had on myself and my brother and my parents that these two individuals ended up reuniting with their father, um, having, you know, becoming drug free. Uh, and uh, inter I've known them now for 22 years. And for 22 years, that's probably the most important Christmas card I get every year is from this gentleman and his brother with a sobriety coin of, Hey, Mr. Kelly, just want to let you know, we have this many years of sobriety. And I say we because it wasn't something I did. It's something we did together. And that means a lot to me, you know, that um, I had that impact. And it, it was just based on one conversation I had about addiction and the impact it had on my life. Gave them the power to want to change theirs. Yeah. Well, something, something that's been an absolute common denominator in a lot of the very powerful stories that have been on here is just courage and vulnerability to tell a story. And I think, again, if you shut down those lines of communication, you get that facade of, oh, you know, addiction, mental health, all that stuff is weakness, you know. And then I think that leads to a lot of, you know, further addiction of, of suicides, of all these things that we see. So I think it's so important to have an environment where people can be vulnerable, can tell their own stories, and then realize that, again, as we mentioned, whether it's Norway or America, there are commonalities in all the human struggles that we see. Definitely. And I think that even expands not only to the individuals in our care and custody, but the individuals that work here. And that's, you know, going back to Norway, that's one of the things they taught us is because we talked about, well, how do, how do you make sure your staff aren't too friendly and don't become too close? The way they described it, they said, you're allowed to be personal, just don't be private. You know, and trying to come back and understand that, that as staff, it's OK for me to be vulnerable in front of somebody that's incarcerated, that it gives them a better perspective, you know. Just because you're a correction officer doesn't mean you have to be all powerful and know all that you can be vulnerable too. and sharing like, hey, I have life struggles as well. And, you know, you don't need to go into detail, but recognizing that, yeah, I, I, I have faced some struggles in the past, too. And these are some things that helped me get through my struggles, you know, whatever, you know, um, things that we utilize. Now, I know here in Florida, again, if my correct, my information is correct, they recently closed down a lot of the, the drug addiction programs within our prisons here. What have you seen nationally um, as far as the support of mental health and addiction programs within the prisons? Um, I think it's unfortunately it's um, an expensive type of program and it takes a lot of staffing and I think unfortunately we don't have enough of it and it's not because I don't think there's 
the desire, but it's hard to get. I mean, I know here in Oregon, we have a really hard time filling all of our mental health uh, positions because there is a high need for mental health uh, treatment in the United States in general, out in the communities as well as in our jails and prison systems. So trying to find enough individuals to fill just the ones out in uh, the general society is hard enough, but then to try to get them to come and work inside our correctional facilities is even more difficult. So um, I, I think I, what, I, what I see is that we don't have enough of it um, and that we you know, need to be able to expand it. Absolutely. Well, you, you mentioned the men. So I'd love, again, if you could kind of educate people on, on what they do and you know, where they're based and what they do and what they're trying to do. So Amend is um, based out of California. They're, um, Bree Williams, uh, their founder, is she's a medical doctor um, at the University of California, San Francisco, and kind of got into this of wanting to make change um, and having um, prison systems look at ways to do things differently. And they landed on the Norwegian model. They you know, explored and educated themselves on different models around the world and came up with that they believe the Norwegian model, the Norway model, was one that could best translate into um, our prison systems here in the United States or influence um, or give us the exposure opportunity to look at change. And they more or less facilitate uh, the conversation and the exposure. So what, what I really like about Amend is they don't come in and tell me how to do it. They give me the opportunity to see ways it can be done differently. And then we talk through that and they help facilitate that conversation from an outside perspective um, with, a, with an insight into um, making places better or making people better. And uh, they facilitate that and give us the exposure and the training and the resources to utilize to make change and do better. Um, so it's, it's, you know, sometimes in prison systems, you know, you invite people in, come tell me, you know, come evaluate my system, do an audit and look at things, and then they come back and give you recommendations of here's what you need to do, here's how you need to change it, where amend is more or less like, hey, tell me your struggles, tell me the kind of things you have going on in your prison system that you think you would like to look at, and then they give us the opportunity for exposure and different ideas and ways people do it different, and then help, like I said, facilitate that conversation or, or give us the resources or um, the platform to discuss those changes or discuss those things and come up with ideas on how we can do it better. Beautiful. Now, one you know one uh, project within the prison that seems to have got a lot of attention and, and it, you know it was incredible. I watched some of the videos on it. Was the Japanese Garden? So, kind of tell me about the genesis of that. Um, so, the Healing Garden was a concept. Uh, I think it goes back to 2015. Um, we have some. Uh, uh, Adult and custody-led clubs here at the penitentiary. We have 16 different clubs. Most most of them are cultural-based, um, so they're uh, adult and custody-ran. Um, one of them is our Asian Pacific Culture Club, um, and they had an idea that they wanted to do a healing garden here at the penitentiary in a little area of our inside our prison. Um, so in the early 90s, we had trees and some awnings and stuff here, and in, 1998, we had a major incident on a recreation yard where our knee-jerk reaction, which we often do well in corrections, is come in and take all the trees out, cut down all the awnings, and give a clear line of sight, you know, to see what's going on on our yards. 
and we haven't had any real kind of uh, greenery to any degree, a little bit of grass, but nothing major since then. So they had this idea that they wanted to bring a garden back. And they uh, presented uh, the idea to the uh, superintendent at the time who approved it. It was going to be a nice little small plot. You know, I think it was something like 20 by 20 little area that they're going to do this little healing garden. Well, in the meantime, fast forward a little bit. They uh, had the opportunity to uh, meet a gentleman by the um, Cariso International. So he's actually a world-renowned um, Japanese garden designer. Uh, he heard their concept. They came in and presented to him and gave him this idea. And he was so impressed by their presentation and what they wanted to do that he, uh, in partnership, said, hey, I, I want to be involved. I want to help you guys design a healing garden inside our wall, inside the walls, and help design it and educate uh, the population, uh, both that work here and, and live here, on the impact of a healing garden and the impact of on nature on on us as human beings and on change. Uh, so our uh, club, they came up with this idea. Mr. H HK, we call him. He came in and gave our executive team a. Uh, presentation on the healing garden and what he wanted. Um, three times he came back of he wanted more space and more space. And his presentation of the adults in custody to him were so moving that we ended up giving them the whole area that was available. Um, he convinced us it was going to be beneficial. The clubs were able to raise uh, somewhere around three hundred eighty thousand uh, dollars to do this healing garden. A hundred and roughly 112 AICs participated in the construction. It was all under um, HK uh, uh, Cariso International is the name of his corporation that they oversaw the design and um, build of it. And there is no way I could even put into words. I would encourage anybody listening to look up the Japanese Healing Garden, Oregon State Penitentiary. And you will be amazed at what that is, and even more amazed that it's inside a maximum security prison. But it was what it really did was brought, you know, as I say, it was the Asian Pacific Club that is their philosophy, and they brought it forward. But when I say roughly 112 AICs worked on it, there were members of every ethnicity, every belief system, every culture that was involved, and it has really helped bring the culture of the Oregon State Penitentiary together of those that live here and work here on working together for such a beautiful thing and how, how impactful that can be and help and change. Absolutely. Well, you illustrated with one story with a gentleman um, eating under the tree. I'd love to hear that because I think that pretty much sums up the, the, the effect that you were hoping for with the garden. Yes. Uh, so it's, you know, as we're building the garden, um, one of our assistant superintendents, uh, we're walking by and we're going to have a meeting and he shows up the meeting and says, hey, you're not, you're not going to believe this. And he said, what? He says, and I walked by the healing garden and there's a tree and he says there was a adult in custody under a tree eating a sack lunch, eating a sandwich, and he said he was crying. And we were all like crying. What was he crying about? He's like, I don't know. You know, he was under this tree and he's crying. So the guy, uh, the assistant uh, superintendent followed up with the AIC later and said, hey, you know, I noticed when you were under the tree um, eating your lunch, you know, you, you were crying. Everything okay? And uh, the individual looked at him and says, no, I, I am okay. He says, I haven't sat underneath a tree to have lunch in over 20 years. 
He says, I didn't know what that experience would feel like. He says, so I was taken over an emotion of the freedom to sit under a tree and eat a sandwich. And uh, when he came back and relayed that back to the rest of us, you know, we all sat there for a moment and said, man, never thought about it like that. You know, and it led us to start discussing like, hey, well, what do you do for vacation? Well, you know, one guy, hey, I like to go camping. I, myself, my wife and I, we like to go to Hawaii, you know, and put our feet in the sand and watch the ocean. And as we all started to think about it, like, you know, all of us to find peace, you know, most of us anyway, to find peace, like to become one with nature and go out and see the beauty of nature and see the water, sit under a tree, feel the wind in your face and realizing what an impact that could have and how moving of an experience that could be someone and how not having that can impact someone. Well, exactly. And, and of all the interviews I've done, the absolute common denominator, I'll ask you at the end of this um, as well, the closing question, one of them is, what do you do to decompress? And nearly every single time there is a nature of element. They like to, they like to hike or kayak or go to the ocean or, you know, whatever it is, but none of it in, involves locking themselves in a dark room, you know? So like you said, when you understand there's a healing element of that, that you can pull free people from a dark place. And I'm sure most of the people that are behind bars at the moment were not in a great space when they committed whatever crime they were doing to to uh, steer them to a place of healing. Nature is incredibly powerful. So when you look at the fact that we have these concrete walls around not only the prisoners, but the guards as well, and we see this, you know, this mental ill health in the corrections profession and the suicides that we see as well. Again, it just it seems like there's so much value if we can just shift the focus from the way we've been doing it to the, you know, the more of the Norwegian philosophy and put some of those healing elements in and put these outlets for people to focus their energy on. I don't see how it wouldn't work, how it wouldn't help. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, Mr. Creaso, that's one of his uh, points he made to us is uh, on nature. He said the most beautiful lotus can grow from the dirtiest of mud. And uh, that was very, that's a very impactful statement he made to us, you know, where we realized he said, so nature, you know, nature can heal and nature can bring beauty, even out of the darkest place. Absolutely. Well, that, that's the garden. So are there any other programs that you've implemented that you've seen success with? Um, we're seeing a huge success in our CrossFit program. Uh, we just had our, uh, oh, shoot, I think it was the third event that staff have competed in. It's an exercise program. For those that don't know, it's a type of exercise. We have a large group of uh, individuals that are involved in that and do competitions, and we are seeing a lot of positive change of, out of exercise and um, physical interaction. Um, and it's another case of every group, every ethnicity all come together for camaraderie. We did a large event um, in early August to honor a fallen uh, Marine out of Oregon. Um, just coincidental that I was a Marine and so was this individual. The adults in custody chose, uh, invited his father uh, to come be a participant in it. Um, they presented him with a plaque um, to honor his son and the sacrifice he made for our country. And we did a workout in his honor together, staff and adults in custody as well. Um, I did it, uh, our assistant superintendent did it, some counselors did it. And it was a show of us working together. Um, people that live here, people that work here, sweating together, remembering somebody that lost their life and understanding um, how we can do better together. 
Um, it was very moving to the Father that he now wants to be, become even more involved in our prison system. And how can he help? Because uh, he said, the, the power of seeing all of you together um, doing positive things is moving. And uh, so that's a very great program we do. And uh, just overall, just our own philosophy here. I think we've seen a lot of positive change here, as we say, um, coming together, those that live here, those that work here, a responsibility together to make this a better place. That's amazing. Do you have an actual affiliate in the prison? Uh, no, we do not. Okay, that would be kind of cool too. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Um, well, well, speaking of that, so you said about the community, and now we're recording this on 9-11. My gym actually is doing a 9-11 tribute workout, um, you know, every class today. Um, and that's something that I've witnessed as well. In the CrossFit community, all shapes and sizes, like you said, you're coming together, you're suffering together. Many times it's a hero awards who doing it to memorialize someone, to show their family that, you know, people haven't forgotten about them and they still care. And, uh, you know, what I think some of the problems that we're seeing at the moment, even in, in your state, is is the polar opposite. Uh, people are being divided and labeled and put in little pigeonholes and then poked until they start fighting with each other. So what have you witnessed as far as the element of community where, where you've got a, a prison system where, you know, traditionally there are gangs and, and racial groups and trying to trying to use things like program to re make them realize, as we said with Norway, that you're just human beings and you actually have the same issues. You share far more things than you have differences. Yeah, and what, what I think what we've seen is we do community meetings here uh, at the penitentiary, and that's something we've started, and that's you know kind of a, a bastoy was where we got the idea actually to do community meetings, and we're you know every other week I do it with a group of individuals here. They sign up for it you know right now we're limited due to covid and how many people we have uh, at each meeting but uh, where we get up and we talk about cultural issues and talk about issues in our society and our community here in the prison and together as a group you know as we have the discussion it's very powerful to hear all of them say that their goal is to show that if we all can come together in what most what a lot of people perceive as a bad place and work together towards a common goal and put aside our differences and recognize each other for who we are as human beings in our own beliefs but that we can come together and make a better world and a better place that they you know our population here they want to be a representation of how can we show that out into the communities you know starting here in Oregon and saying hey look there is a better way to do it because if we can do it in a maximum security prison you should be able to do it out into the free community. And uh, to see that come together is just remarkable. I mean, do we sometimes have our differences? Most definitely. I mean, you know, I can't say that this place is always rainbows and butterflies. But because we focus on the positive and openly talk about um, what's going on in the world today and more, more importantly in, in our community here and recognizing that and um, validating each other, we are seeing an increasingly better place and a reduction in the violence inside here and the reduction in negative behavior and just a better understanding of one another and a better understanding of um, who we are as people. Brilliant. Well, I got one more last thing for you and then we'll go to some closing questions. If you could design the next prison and you, you actually had you know a, a group of people behind you supporting you saying, all right, whatever, whatever you want to do now, here's the funding, here's the, uh, the resources, what would the prison of the future look like? Um, huh. That's pretty powerful. Uh, 
Well, first, it wouldn't look like a prison. It wouldn't be called a prison. It'd be called a, a community of change. And I think that's uh, what we talked about in our last community meeting is it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a community of labels. And unfortunately, that's what we do in, in corrections. You know, we label people as inmates. We label people as staff. And that is that um, drop the labels and it, it would be a community of change and a community of opportunity. And uh, it would throw us all together and provide those opportunities and have open lines of communication, open lines of dialogue and open opportunity for difference and acceptance of one another. So I think, you know, it kind of goes back to a lot of the things I think we talked about is it would just be that opportunity. And I think sometimes in prisons, too, it wouldn't be uh, an environment. Yes, you have to have rules and policies that dictate how we do, but they don't have to dictate everything we do, if that makes sense. You know, that we don't have to always look for the policies and rules that tell us how to do business. That uh, uh, what we teach our staff now, do what you feel is right. Do the right thing. And normally, people in turn will do the right thing in exchange, and you'll get the right outcome. Beautiful. Yeah, I think that's what I found a lot with this project is all the issues that we have, reverse engineer them to their absolute core. And the core, obviously, of you know taking someone's freedom temporarily is because at that moment they've done something wrong they were danger to society or the ill like you said you've got you've got some some behavior that needs to be rectified but that's found itself now to these you know concrete buildings that people are locked in and so if we reverse engineer to we want to fix people and then reinvent forward again what are what are some different ways we can do it and i think that with bastoy there's, their freedom is still gone. They're on an island off Oslo. You know, there are still corrections officers overseeing them. But you know, again, they, they see daylight, they see nature, they cook, they clean, they live together, they have to, you know, interact, they have to hold down jobs, they can learn new skills. And so, as I've pointed out with a couple of people, including Tom, one day these people are going to get released from prison unless they've done something absolutely horrendous. And they're going to move back into your street next door to you and your family and your kids who do you want? Someone who's been locked in a, in a cage for you know, 10, 20, 30 years of their life or someone who's been through programs where they basically lived in a community, they're just moving to your community again? No, definitely. Yeah, I mean, Norway has a very good philosophy. Is we're, we're here to make better neighbors. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, I want to transition some closing questions so I can let you get on with your day. Any, any films and or documentaries that you love? I would highly recommend Just Mercy. Great movie. Brilliant. All right. Um, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? From in relation to corrections? It can be anyone. Anyone at all. Oh, man. That gives me quite a platform. Yeah, you know... Uh, I would recommend Mr. Coffee, who we met last week, whose son lost his life. He's a firefighter and now had the exposure to what we do in corrections. And uh, his ability to see that transition of first responder from a firefighter perspective to um, how we work here in corrections. Uh, he was a very moving man and sharing his son's story with the individuals that live here and philosophy um, was really neat and really cool. I mean, it was a moving experience. Brought me to tears as I heard, heard him speak. You, and that was his son that was the Marine? Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah, Thanks. I highly recommend trying the coffee wad sometime. It was a good one. 
Brilliant. I will. I'll program in the gym. Thank you. Um, all right. Then the last question before we make sure everyone knows how to find you, you know, if they're, if they're able to reach out, um, what do you do to decompress yourself? I, I do CrossFit. I love to do CrossFit. I work out six days a week. Um, I love the mountain bike. Just got myself a new mountain bike last month and put 80 miles in last week of mountain biking. And then I like to uh, spend some time in Hawaii on the beach doing nothing but watching the waves go by. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. Well, then I'm sure people are fascinated. I'm sure that, you know, there's probably some people in the corrections arena that would love to learn more, reach out. Um, is there any way of people contacting you or, or are there any, any websites people can go to to learn more about what you try to do in Oregon? Uh, yeah, you could either go to our website and uh, we call it the Oregon Way. Um, and there's a lot of information on the Internet. So if you just search uh, Oregon Department of Corrections, Oregon Way. Uh, if you go to the Oregon Department of Corrections page, uh, Oregon State Penitentiary, you can get my email. It's Brandon, B-R-A-N-D-O-N dot J dot Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y at D-O-C dot state dot O-R dot U-S. And uh, like I said earlier, look up the Japanese Healing Garden, Oregon State Penitentiary. You'll be amazed. Absolutely. Well, I'll put all those links in the webpage for this episode as well as so people can find them easily. I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, to, to get to speak to the superintendent of um, the penitentiary is, is incredible. And I, I'm looking forward to kind of tying this in with the interview with Amanda and Tom as well. But thank you for just, you know, being part of the solution. I mean, as a first responder, I get to see the ripple effects of the drugs, you know, policy of the way we, we prison. I mean, all these different elements. We see what works and then we clearly see what doesn't work. And the fact that there are people embracing change swallowing pride and and you know looking elsewhere for for ideas is incredible so thank you so much for taking the time to, to tell the story today thank you very much for giving me the opportunity and the time um, i'm very passionate about what we do and love to share our story and look forward to making further changes in the future